Hello, my name's Eric Clausen, and welcome to The Faithful Forebears, a podcast about Christian men and women that the church and the world have largely forgotten. To begin, I'd like to say a little bit about the purpose of this podcast. And to do that, I'm going to first quote Houston Gonzalez, one of my favorite church historians. And he begins his book, The Story of Christianity, like this. The reader will probably be surprised to learn that I regard this book in large measure as autobiographical. It is so, first of all, because, as Jose Ortega y Gazette said, each generation stands on the shoulders of its predecessors like acrobats in a vast human pyramid. Thus, to tell the story of those whom we are heirs is to write a long preface to our own life stories. End quote. You see, as modern Christians, and as people in general, we are shaped in ways that we will never know by those who have gone before us. But the more we understand about them and their choices, the more we understand about ourselves. Our understanding of history is something that is a deficiency in all of us, and especially for Christians today. As modern Christians, specifically modern American Christians, we have very little knowledge of those who have gone before us in the faith. I think this is to our great disadvantage. As C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, Through the Devil Wormwood, since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is more important thus to cut off every generation from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between ages, there is always a danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected, by the characteristic truths of another. Not only does history help us learn about ourselves, it gives us a glimpse from another perspective, and it also gives us humility. The questions we have, the struggles we face, are rarely things that are new. Most of the questions we do have are questions that Christians have dealt with for the last 2,000 years. And while the church faces struggles ahead, we can take courage knowing that the church has faced just as harsh of struggles before. So, with this little series, I hope to change some of that. I hope to show the lives of faithful Christians who have gone before us. What were their contexts? What were their struggles? What can they teach us about living faithfully today? And what mistakes did they make that we can learn from? I will start this series with a focus on Christians in the Middle Ages. I'm going to skip the early church fathers for now because there are already a lot of great resources on them. So I will go to a bit of church history that is rarely talked about a period beginning roughly in 500 A.D. I will try to focus on some of the well-known and also some lesser-known figures of this time, and in these first episodes we will especially focus on the Christianization of Europe. So the first figure we're going to look at is Gregory I, also known as Gregory the Great. He is respected by pretty much all Christian traditions, and John Calvin, a thousand years later, would even call him the last good pope. But to understand Gregory, first we need to understand a little bit about his world. And so we need to go to about the time 500 AD. Now there is some debate as to when the Roman Empire officially ended. A lot of textbooks will say 476 AD. But you could also say later or earlier with good reasons. But all we need to know is that things were not going great in Rome at this time. They had been conquered and reconquered. Their city had been sacked multiple times, and they had lost the vast majority of their previous empire. And now they were being ruled over by foreign barbarians. The city was nowhere near the glorious center of the world 
it had been long ago. That's only part of the story, though. Because in the first part of the 500s, things looked like they might perhaps change for the better. You see that while the western part of the Roman Empire was falling, the eastern half of the Roman Empire was still for the most part intact. That half of the empire would last another thousand years, in fact. But it's right around this time that historians start calling that eastern half of the Roman Empire the Byzantine Empire. And this Byzantine Empire in the 530s and 540s AD made a bid to reunite the eastern and western halves of the empire. And they almost pulled it off, but not quite. They were able to retake Italy for a short while, but not for long. This is the world into which Gregory was born. He was born in 540 AD in Rome to a well-off family. His family was very devout, and in fact, both his mother, Sylvia, and his two aunts, Tarsilla and Emiliana, are canonized by the Catholic Church as saints. However, even for a devout, prosperous family, life was not going well in the city of Rome. In the last decade, the entire Italian peninsula had been a war zone. The Ostrogoths, those foreign barbarians who ruled over Italy, had ruled until the Byzantines retook it from them. And this war between the Byzantines and the Ostrogoths had seriously devastated the city of Rome and all the surrounding countryside. To make matters worse, a plague hit in 542. Gregory's parents decided that this was not the best place to raise a family, and they fled, likely to the island of Sicily. While they were gone, fighting continued between the Goths and the Byzantines, and Rome itself was conquered and reconquered several times, only increasing the devastation. After growing up about seven years abroad, Gregory and his family decided it was finally time to come back to Rome, in 549. Possibly they hoped the fighting would stop, but a year after they came back to Rome, it was once again reconquered by the Goths. Finally, three years later, in 552, the Goths were totally defeated, and it looked like peace might return to Italy. During this more peaceful time, Gregory began his education. His family was in the highest rungs of the Roman social order, the senatorial class. This means he got a very good education in grammar, rhetoric, mathematics, and science. And apparently he excelled at everything he studied. The leadership of the city recognized his talent, and when he was 27 years old, he was given the office of Prefect of the City. It was something that certainly looked nice on the resume, but it didn't actually mean much. You see, power was shifting away from the ancient Roman ways of doing things into a more medieval system. And that position, while it might have meant a lot before, it was almost pointless now. Regardless if this office would soon be obsolete or not, Gregory hated it. As we will see, Gregory will continually resist any sort of public office. In a letter recalling this part of his life, he states, While my mind obliged me to serve this present world in outward action, its cares began to threaten me, so that I was in danger of being engulfed not only in outward action, but, what is more serious, in my mind. He may have been brilliant, but... This wasn't what he loved. He wanted to spend time alone, in prayer, reading scripture, and meditating. And so, after serving as the prefect for possibly less than a year, Gregory resigned. And he immediately went to the place where he could spend all his time praying, reading scripture, and meditating. A monastery. 
And not only did he do this, but he also donated his massive family land holdings to the church. And this land included the Coline Hill, which is very prime real estate in Rome. And it was turned into a monastery called St. Andrews. And I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me like Gregory. He doesn't want the life of a rich playboy or politician. He just wants to live a quiet life in peace. He describes it himself in his letters as his love for eternity that calls him away from a secular life to a more spiritual one. Gregory of Tours, a contemporary of Gregory's and a bishop, describes it this way. He who had been wont to go about the city in a trabii, that is, high-class clothing, and aglow with silk and jewels, was now clad in a worthless garment and serving at the altar of the Lord. The next years of Gregory's life are ones that he himself says were his happiest. He engaged the monastic life with full enthusiasm. He fasted, prayed, meditated, read scripture, and, in general, led a very austere life. So austere, in fact, that many of his biographers suspect that it may have caused him health problems in later life. While this may have been a very happy time for Gregory, that does not mean that he was all laughs and smiles. According to one legend, when another monk confessed on his deathbed to stealing three gold coins from Gregory, Gregory left him to die alone. And when the monk was buried, Gregory threw three gold coins into his grave, saying, Take your money with you to perdition. But don't worry, the legend ends happily, I guess, because Gregory performed 30 masses for the monk's soul, and, according to legend, another monk at their monastery then met the dead man in a dream. There the dead man told him that Gregory had saved his soul through his harsh methods. Soon others heard rumors about this, and suddenly all sorts of people were asking for masses for the dead. This was the beginning of what would become a major part of medieval piety. Some people even believe this is where the idea of purgatory first began. Now, as happy as Gregory might have been, he was not destined for a quiet life in monastic obscurity. Soon his superiors discovered just how brilliant Gregory was in leadership and administration. So after four or five years of living in a monk's paradise, he was called to be a deacon by Pope Pelagius II. And at this time, Pelagius needed some brilliant people to get through the current crisis. You see, even though the Byzantines had defeated the Ostrogoths, now 20 years ago, there was a new enemy that had begun threatening Rome, the Lombards. The Lombards had been living around modern-day Austria, and they noticed that the Byzantine presence in Italy was looking very weak. And after exhausting wars against the Goths, both the Goths and the Byzantines had been left totally unprepared. So when the Lombards began to invade northern Italy in 568, they were almost entirely unopposed. In fact, before long, the Lombards controlled over half of Italy. And it's not some fairly clean half-and-half -half split either, like east-west or north-south. The Lombards sporadically took several different regions. They had most of the north of Italy, part of the west of Italy, and some in the south. Luckily, they didn't yet control Rome, but... Unluckily, they were on almost all sides of Rome. So with this new threat, and with the recent devastations that Italy was still recovering from, everyone in Rome was on edge and looking for someone to protect them. And their gaze was mostly on the Byzantine Empire. 
The Byzantines had not totally given up on Rome, and they did leave a small garrison in Italy, supposedly to protect it, in the city of Ravenna. Ravenna was well fortified and surrounded by swamps, but the Byzantine governor there, called the Exarch, would not come out of his well-fortified city surrounded by swamps to defend the weakened Roman city. So it looked like Rome would be given up to the Lombards. In the face of this impending crisis, Pope Pelagius put his best man on the job, Gregory. Gregory would go to the capital of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople, and get support however he could. Gregory would end up spending the next six years of his life there, and this was not a happy time for Gregory. Remember, Gregory loved the simple monastic life, and so he hated going to the biggest, most cosmopolitan city in the world. And that's exactly what Constantinople was at this time. It was the city of the Western world. So Gregory was sent right to the most decadent part of the highest echelons of the biggest city. He hated every minute of it. Also, unfortunately for Gregory, the current emperor of the East, Maurice, had already made up his mind concerning Rome. He would try to help them diplomatically, but he would not be sending any troops to defend the city. Constantinople had its own problems to deal with in the north and to the east, and as much as Gregory tried, the emperor and his later successor would not be swayed. While Gregory in the end failed in this sense of his mission, he certainly made good use of his time in Constantinople. In spite of hating it so much, he did become very popular in the royal court and soon had many important friends whom Gregory would keep in contact with through the rest of his life. He also learned an important lesson. Rome could not depend on Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire for any kind of serious support. While Gregory was there, he also got into a bit of trouble. He became embattled in a theological controversy with the patriarch, of Constantinople. And in fact, this theological controversy would escalate so far that the emperor himself had to settle the dispute. The disagreement was about the nature of the resurrected body of Jesus in the resurrected body of the saints. The patriarch, named Eutychius, claimed that bodies would be impalpable, lighter than air. Gregory fiercely disagreed, saying that the resurrected body would be palpable and physical. While in the end the emperor judged Gregory correct, the controversy became so intense that both Gregory and the patriarch became seriously ill. While Gregory recovered, the patriarch did not. But on his deathbed, he recanted of his error. This time, Gregory graciously didn't throw anything on the grave afterwards. In 586, Pope Pelagius recalled Gregory to Rome and Gregory became the abbot of his home monastery, St. Andrews. He had been in Constantinople for six years, and no doubt was very glad to be back home, leaving all that high society life behind. But it was not long before disaster again struck Rome. In 587, the Lombards began waging war again with Rome, and encroaching even closer on their territory. Then, in 589, misery was added to misery, when the Tiber River in Rome flooded, destroying huge parts of the city and spreading plague with it. One of the many victims of this plague was Pope Pelagius himself. 
Now the city was in danger from within, from without, and with no leader. The devastation was so horrific that many Christians, including Gregory, thought that this might be the beginning of the apocalypse. In all this trouble, there was only one obvious choice for the next pope, and everyone knew it. And Gregory knew it too. And there are several legends about his attempts to flee the city to get out of it. In one story, he even hides in the woods, and the people of Rome only find him when divine light shines down on him. While it is clear in his letters that he did not want to take up the task and did not feel worthy at all, he finally did accept. When the emperor confirmed the choice of Gregory, Gregory said in a letter to a friend, Our emperor has ordered an ape to be turned into a lion. In another letter, he stated, I have fallen into fear and dread, for even though I am not afraid for myself, I fear greatly on account of those who have been committed to me. He continued to feel inadequate for the task for the rest of his life. But, seeing as he's called the great, many people disagree with Gregory on this point. Gregory got to work right away. The church and the city of Rome needed it badly. According to legend, one of the first things he did was to process down the streets of Rome, asking God to end the plague. When the procession reached Hadrian's mausoleum, the legend says that they saw the archangel Michael sheathing his sword as a sign that the plague would end. That mausoleum is today called St. Angelo in memory of this legend. While some may be skeptical of this event, it is clear that Gregory was not just some mystic. He was immensely practical. The unrest with the Lombards had filled Rome with Italian refugees, most of whom needed food and clothes. Gregory quickly began making provisions for them and managing the grain supply of Rome to be distributed through the church's infrastructure. Here he proved himself to be an administrator of unparalleled skill. He quickly went to work organizing the vast amount of land owned by the church all across Europe. And all this was to provide for Rome in its time of need. So lazy and dishonest tenants of the church soon discovered that they could not deceive their new landlord. Gregory appointed new managers and overseers, and soon Rome was receiving food and supplies that it desperately needed. In doing this, he also spent a good deal of his own family's fortune to secure the grain and supplies. He also began a task that would be quite unheard of for a church leader today, and something that still makes modern people a little uncomfortable thinking about. Gregory began organizing the military defense of Rome from the Lombards. Usually this would be the job of the maester militum, that's the leader of the Roman garrison. But at this point in time, Rome had no such person. So Gregory took on that task as well. At one point, the nearby city of Naples was in danger of being attacked and had no high-ranking officer present to defend it. So instead of waiting for help from the Byzantine emperor, or the Exarch, Gregory simply appointed his own commander to take control of the city and to defend it from the Lombards. Now it may seem very inappropriate for a pope to be commanding the military, but in this situation, it's hard to blame Gregory. The city was facing destruction with no help in sight. Gregory could clearly see that no one else had the influence to take up such a task. So, as pope, he took up governmental power. Sadly, it would be the beginning of a political entity that
that would be known as the Papal States, which will play a major role in medieval politics. So Gregory, while acting out of necessity, created an unfortunate precedent, the Pope as a political leader. The impressive thing about Gregory is that even though he became somewhat of a political leader, he never forgot the spiritual needs of his people. He always considered himself the servant of the servants of God, a title which the popes still use today. In doing this, he cared greatly about how people interacted with the church the most, through the Mass. He made several changes to the Latin Mass that helped it to be better understood, and some of those changes are still in Catholic Masses today, and many of those changes can be found in other church bodies as well, including Lutherans and Anglicans. Gregory also was a great promoter of plain song and chant in worship, and the success of his change is clear, since the only type of medieval music most of us know is Gregorian chant, named in his honor. In caring for the servants of God, Gregory also had very high standards for the clergy. He strongly enforced discipline on all the other bishops and had no time for incompetence or corruption. He encouraged local synods, that's local councils or groups, a practice that had been forgotten for a long time. He also strengthened the relationship and interaction between Rome and the churches throughout the world. He even wrote his own pastoral handbook for priests and bishops, called Liber Reguli Pastoralis. This would be the standard handbook for priests immediately, and it would stay the standard for the next 1,000 years. In fact, when the Byzantine Emperor Maurice read it, he had it immediately translated into Greek so he could spread it throughout his empire. Alcuin, a church leader in the 9th century, wrote a letter to a friend, Wherever you go, let the pastoral book of St. Gregory be your companion. Read it and reread it often, that in it you may learn to know yourself and your work, and that you may have it before your eyes how you ought to live. Now, whether medieval priests would always follow Gregory's advice, that's another story. Even with one or two of these accomplishments, Gregory would deserve some remembrance. But the inexhaustible Gregory was not done yet. During his time as Pope, he also had a personal dream of sending missionaries to the distant northern island of Britain. In another legend, Gregory saw a group of fair-skinned, blonde-haired men. Gregory asked his companions who these men were. They told him, Angles. Gregory replied, Non angeli, sed angeli. That's not angles, but angels. Gregory then asked, What is the name of the king of their people? They told him, Eli. He replied, Alleluia. God's praise must be heard there. Gregory was so excited, he even hoped that one day he could go to Britain himself. But the responsibilities of his office would not let him. So instead, in 595, he sent a missionary named Augustine. This Augustine is not to be confused with the more famous and earlier Augustine of Hippo. This Augustine would be known as Augustine of Canterbury. This Augustine would meet mixed success on his missionary journey, and I will focus more on him next episode. While Gregory himself would never get there, his passion for Britain endeared him to the English for centuries to come. In fact, he would be known far into the future as Gregorius Noster, or Our Gregory. Near the end of his life, 
Gregory suffered greatly from poor health. Many people believe these health problems stem from his austere life and his ambitious projects. In 604, he breathed his last, and he was made a saint almost immediately, a process that can sometimes take centuries. He was 64 years old, and he had been pope for 14 years. Gregory was not a perfect leader. He was not a subtle theologian or a philosopher or a theorist, and he was sometimes harsh and demanding. He greatly expanded the power and influence of the papacy and Rome, and not always for the better. Sadly, it would not always be wielded with his skill or integrity. But his actions would shape the next thousand years of the church. Unfortunately, few, if any, of the medieval popes would ever measure up to their predecessor. But it is hard to hold Gregory at fault for all these problems. The dark times required a brilliant leader and a man of action, and Gregory met that challenge. While the rest of society in Western Europe was fragmenting, Gregory made sure the church would stay united. Well, that's all for Gregory the Great. Thanks for joining me. Next episode, we will look at those missionaries that Gregory sent to England. And these missionaries, while they will have a rough start, they will end up changing all of church history and, ultimately, all of world history. My name's Eric Claussen, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, please go to my website, faithfulforebears.com, and fill in the Contact Me page. Or, if you'd like, you can send me an email directly at clericclaussen at gmail.com. Thanks. See you next time.